You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. You're listening to episode eight of season two. Yes, and today we are going to be talking to one of our contributors, Will. He was on a couple episodes ago to talk about outer space and aliens. And the Fermi Paradox. And he's coming back today to talk about invisibility. invisibility. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be a good conversation. We're looking Whether forward to like it. Whether you like science or not, if you like Harry Potter, then you should be interested the in The Lord of the Rings also features invisibility pretty oh, prominently. I didn't know that. Okay. Oh, yeah, the ring. He's invisible when he puts the oh, ring on. Oh, right. Yeah. That makes sense. So we'll be talking a little about invisibility. Before that, we're going to be talking about some other science stuff, so stick around. And at the end of the show, if you stick around for that or you want to skip forward through everything no, else. don't suggest that they don't skip do forward. That. At the end of this podcast, we're going to talk about the winner of our giveaway and tell you about all the amazing things that were in the giveaway. Yeah, hopefully you took the time after Thanksgiving to enter our giveaway because it's pretty awesome. I wish I could win it. And by this point, it's too late. So really, you should have done it. Yeah. All right, we are bringing back our tip of the week this week, and it is not about pizza. <laughs> it's not, but it is about food, naturally. Yes, yes because... So, And it is about a type of food that you can put on pizza, and we have put on pizza, and we it's very delicious on pizza. On pizza yes, so. and this is kale chips. Kale chips have been around for a while, and they're fairly popular, but we've kind of been getting into them in recent months, and especially the past month, we've been making them pretty consistently, and they're really good. Yeah, really, really good. I was never I was never an opponent of kale chips, but I was never a big fan until Sally perfected this recipe. And well, I didn't perfect it. I just found the greatest recipe, and it is from a blogger called Oh She Glows. She wrote a cookbook, the Oh She Glows cookbook. This and is a vegan cookbook and yes, blogger, right? Okay. Yes. And um, Angela is her name. I forget what her last name is. But the Ojiglo's cookbook has the best recipe I've ever found for kale chips. It requires cooking it at a lower temperature than you might see on some recipes, around 300, I think. And um, just a very light coating of oil and salt. And then just cooking it for a while. So you have to be patient, but the result is really good. And we like eating it with really anything or just picking at it right from the tray. <laughs> Really, really tasty. And I have to say this blogger, Oshi Glows, Sally's made a good amount of her recipes because Sally likes to be experimental and try to challenge herself with vegan recipes. And I'm always skeptical because Sally's like, oh, I found this great recipe for like vegan hamburgers or like vegan fajitas. Like what is a fajita without cheese and meat? But for I the most part- every recipe I've made of hers you've liked. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Not necessarily like more than- a recipe with meat with meat and cheese but right. i have you haven't them. been disappointed it's really good stuff yeah and the kale i mean no one no one puts meat or dairy in kale anyway so right kale chips work naturally vegan they're vegan <laughs> all the way you just can't cover them in bacon grease right right so that's our hashtag tip of the week make kale chips and if you want the best recipe go to oh glows or our blog vernacularpodcast.com slash yes. blog and you can find a link there to the as cookbook. Well. <laughs> I think that's our blog URL. What did you say? Vernacularpodcast.com slash blog. Um, that sounds good to me. I think it is. If it's not, just go to vernacularpodcast.com and click blog. Click blog. <laughs> That'll get you that's there That's really too. easy. Right on the homepage. <laughs> it really should be slash blog. I'll, yeah, I'll, maybe just work on that I'll if fix it's not. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So now let's talk about contemporary preoccupations. Yes. 
Zach, what is your contemporary preoccupation? So I've really been into HBO's series, The Newsroom. We just finished season two last night because that's the only uh, amount of the show that's free on Amazon Prime. There are three seasons. We are only watching two as of now because Amazon Prime gives us those for free. And I guess we're kind of late to the newsroom game, right? Yeah, it's definitely. I think season three or season two wrapped up in 2014. Okay. Maybe even 2013. Okay. So we definitely are late to the game, but it's a really good game. But it's so good. Yeah. Now we've issued disclaimers before with things like Master of None. The newsroom uh, does not get as uh, crass or as foul as Master of None, unfortunately, will do. But the newsroom still does deal with some thematic elements that are not appropriate for all viewers. So disclaimer there. Also, uh, some bad language throughout. But the storyline is very good. It's written by Aaron Sorkin, author of the screenplay for The West Wing. Yeah. So if you like The West Wing, you will like The Newsroom. Yeah. And so the whole show is really permeated with Aaron Sorkin's style. And so a lot of witty banter back and forth between the characters. It's It's, hard to keep up sometimes. It is. It's a really good in-depth look, though, at American media and how the media production process works. Lots of good drama between the characters that really feels characters. real and doesn't feel soap opera-ish yeah. uh, much of the time at all. It's hard to achieve. Yeah, it's really good. Really heartily recommend. And season two had a great ending that Sally and I both loved. So Yeah, I may or may not have cried. And season two was better than season one, I think. Yes, Just oh, definitely. The storyline was much more gripping. Yes, uh, yes. Season one, I think every individual episode was self-contained well, but stor- season two had a much better... Kind of arc unifying that, arc yeah yeah that really, brought really all good of stuff. The, the episodes together yeah so if you haven't watched the newsroom then definitely do that <laughs> and you know something i realized that i haven't quite realized before i was listening to a podcast called bullseye that's uh produced by npr and the show is one in which the host jesse i forget his last name sits down with other comedians to talk about comedy and in this case he was sitting down with two comedians who were improv comedians and they were talking about why they like improv. They just made an improv vi- uh, movie where there's a, there's no screenplay. It's just characters doing improv, which sounds very weird to me and sounds like a lot of jokes could fall flat, et cetera. But the host was asking these guys why they like improv. And one of them said, you know, improv is so interesting because everything is going to be so unique and each character is going to be so unique because, and he said, when you watch an Aaron Sorkin series or a film, everybody sounds like Aaron Sorkin. And you can totally see that in the newsroom because every character has the same witty, I don't know, hu- sense of humor, the same ability to say... To think on their feet so quickly yeah. and respond to jokes with better jokes. Yeah. It just makes me feel completely inadequate. That's what I was going to say watching this show. I'm like, man, I can't keep up with these people. Yeah. Glad I, I don't work there. I can hardly string a sentence together on our podcast, let alone <laughs> on the floor of a newsroom. <laughs> so, yeah. So, But that's not a discredit to the show, just a recognition that... You know, this guy was right about improv. I can see how that would be the case that every character is original, whereas you go to something that Aaron Sorkin's written or maybe it's all out of the mouth of Aaron Sorkin. Right, exactly. Which is fantastic, so I'm not complaining. <laughs> it's just it's it's not quite real world. Right. You right. Know, in many respects it feels real, but but the dialogue is not yeah, quite real. Yeah, if you real. think about it, not all of those people it's on a would higher be level. that intelligent. Right. <laughs> But that's what I've been really interested in lately. What about you, Sally? Yeah. So my contemporary preoccupation, aside from making kale chips, has been finding new recipes for soups and chilies because it's 
cold here. It's November. Actually, it's December. <laughs> um, and we have some recipes that I've used in the past, but I just like finding new ones. And we've really been really into eating soups and chilies. They're great as leftovers. They're great for dinner. Um, so yeah, I've done some from the Oh She Glows cookbook and just like other blogs. Um, My we... favorite is when you make homemade bread to go along with the soups and chilies. Yes. yes. Sally makes some really good homemade bread. Yeah. So that is really good. Um, we had a pulled pork the other day and I turned that into a chili. It was, well, actually it was, it was like a pulled pork like a enchilada soup. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that was just kind of a random assortment of recipes that I threw together. So it's just been fun to kind of finding new soup and chili recipes to keep us warm in this cold weather. You can never go wrong with chili. Yeah. Yeah. Tomatoes and meat and beans. Yeah. So good. Top it and with... I like trying to find vegan and vegetarian recipes that make Zach think that there's meat in there. <laughs> You've never actually fooled me. Right. I've True. never thought there was meat in there. But you haven't felt like, oh, this is not hearty enough. No, like last night, the one that you made, yeah. quinoa and bean chili. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. I didn't feel like I needed meat to have a complete meal. Yeah. Or that lentil kale soup. And to be fair, I don't always think that. I'm not a total carnivore here. Oh, right, right, right. I used to be. And then we got married and you taught me. Yeah. You have a great appreciation for vegetarian cuisine. I do. We do it, what, three to four nights a week, vegetarian food? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It can be good. So that's kind of my contemporary preoccupation. But I thought you were going to talk about your contemporary preoccupation with playing Christmas music. Oh, yes. I do have this playing and listening uh, to Christmas music. Yeah, I love Christmas music. So, And it's finally, quote unquote, allowed. Where are those people? I know some people start listening in November, but we wait until after Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to so to end of music. November is when the Christmas music comes on in our house. My favorite Christmas album is the Michael Buble Christmas. The one, so the good. album where he does a duet in White Christmas uh, with Shania Twain. So good. He sings Baby Please Come Home, Blue Christmas, all the classics, and it's really it's really awesome. It has the big band swing style, which I love. Yeah. So that's a lot of fun to listen to. And then I like to hop on our piano because Sally and I have a piano, and I like to play a lot of my own stuff. In fact, the other day, Sally, when you were out of the house, I recorded a little something. Really? Yeah. Wow. Are you going to share that with me, us? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, so this is acapella. This is a, a rendition of the first verse of what child is this oh i love what child is this all right what child is this who lays to rest on mary's lap is sleeping who angels greet with anthems sweet what shepherds watch our keeping Okay, wait, wait, wait. You said you recorded this, but it sounds like you brought in like your backup singers or the pentatonics or something to join you. It's that's very flattering. It does sound like I have backup singers, but it's actually me just recording the same track over and over again. <laughs> and I just used your MacBook. That was just the microphone built into the computer. I didn't wow. even use yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Wow. That's kind yeah, of fun. That's great. So I really like it. It would have taken me a lot longer if I did all the verses. So yeah. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. But yeah, it was kind of spontaneous. I just was like, well, I'll just 
you know, sing the first verse, the melody, and then I'll just record it over a bunch of times nice. and make up harmonies for all the other parts. And That's awesome. Kind of worked out. There are some parts where I'm like, oh, that, maybe that harmony didn't quite work out, but... <laughs> Yeah, it was fun. That's great. So yeah, Christmas music, that's another big one of mine. I love Christmas music. Uh, the more of it, the better. Yes. And yeah. it's so sad when January comes around because when January hits, I kind of stop listening to Christmas music. Yeah. And then I have to wait till after Thanksgiving. So another <laughs> 11 long months. Yeah. I feel like I'm more the stickler on that than you are, but you you kind of placate me. So speaking of Christmas, we should talk about Christmas a little bit because this is our only podcast before Christmas. That is true. And aside from Christmas music, which I do love, I also look forward to watching Christmas movies. As and, do I. Yes. And I think that there's just this short little window of time when we can watch them. So I kind of have this feeling of like, okay, we need to stay on top of our Christmas movie watching schedule. Here's the thing though. You and I have different definitions of what constitutes an acceptable Christmas movie. True. So for you, it's like there's three of them. and That's not true. Okay. They're, there's uh, a handful. It's a Wonderful Life, a classic. Though I wouldn't mind skipping that one this year. I mean, I have skipped it, but it is a classic. Right. I it's love just it. Very, it's just so It's a very long. long classic. Yeah. But I do like that one. Yes. That is definitely an acceptable Christmas movie to Definitely. Watch. White Christmas. We both like that White a lot. Christmas. Love that one. Yep. How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yep. That Last year was my first year watching that, but that was good. The Holiday. Yes. I like that one a lot. Um, love Actually is one you introduced me to. Mm-hmm. And it's not my favorite, but it is good. Right. So we're already at five and there's more to go. Okay. Um, a Christmas Story. I've never seen that. Okay. Um, Elf. Elf, yes. That's so a good one. So we're at seven now. Okay. Um, so oh, uh, Christmas Carol. Oh, Christmas Carol, of course. That's a classic. So eight, another classic. The George C. George C. Scott version. That is my favorite. My dad's favorite is the Alistair Sim version, but it's just so old and black and white. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't love it that much. Uh, a, Muppet, oh, a Muppet Christmas Carol. Yes, I haven't seen that actually. Nine. But um, Miracle on 34th Street. Ten. Uh, oh, while she was sleeping. While you were sleeping. Uh, a, can we count that as a Christmas movie? It happens around Christmas. But, yeah. Okay, yeah. 11. Um, Is that it? Jingle All the Way, 12. I grew Never up with that one. Either. Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay. a classic. Okay, I haven't seen that either. Yeah, so at least a dozen Christmas movies. But you have a much more expansive list, don't you? Not much more expansive, but I do have a place in my heart for the kind of cheesy Christmas movies that are available on Netflix. For free. For right. a reason. <laughs> right. Or Hulu. And anyone out there, have you seen The 12 Dates of Christmas? Anyone? Let me know if you have. because if Editorial seen question. It, have you seen The 12 Dates of Christmas? <laughs> it's good. It's cute. It's fun. <laughs> Anyways, my sisters and I have a thing for it and we watch it every year even in our separate locations and it's just good. But yeah, I do have a place in my heart for those kinds of movies. I don't see myself watching it this, this year though. I, last year I was nursing, um, Esther all the time. So (laughs) while you were gone, I was, I was getting my fill of all of those movies, but (laughs) this year I think I'll, I'll just have to fit it in next week when you're gone. Oh yeah. You could do that (laughs) on your business trip. That's a good time to do it. (laughs) Yeah, so Christmas movies, that's another good one. I'm excited about all the Christmas food we have coming up over the Christmas holiday. Yeah, well, speaking of Christmas food, our Christmas party. Yes. That we are having a Christmas party, which is actually a tradition now for us because we had a big Christmas party last year, and now we've moved, and we're having another Christmas party, and we're really excited about it. Every year we host a Independence Day party, and Independence Day party, and a Christmas party. Yes. This that's has now happened two years in a row. The second annual 
Christmas party is yes. this year. <laughs> the third annual will be next year. You're invited. And the way we do it, we it's pretty low key, but it's really fun. We have chili. We have a ton of chili. And we make some sort of bread or cornbread or something. This year, we're doing a great recipe from Smitten Kitchen. And then people bring dessert and drinks. And it's really chill. Oh, and then we have hot chocolate. So your standard warm weather or cold weather fare. And by low-key, Sally means the best party <laughs> you will ever experience if you have the privilege of coming. And, and you are invited, so you already have the privilege of being invited. Yeah, and if you want to wear an ugly sweater, we'll also have an ugly sweater contest. Just let us know if you're coming to our party, Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. <laughs> Should we talk about science now, Sally? Um, yeah, I think we're ready. Let's do it. <laughs> So in at season one, we talked with our contributor Joshua about a new technique in biotechnology called CRISPR-Cas9. And if I'm remembering correctly, it is a technique by which you can edit genes. So you can kind of do almost like a search and replace button on your computer. Like you can search for, you know, a keyword. And so it's like find this gene and then replace it with a gene that is is healthy. Does that make sense? Is that right? I think so, yeah. It basically involves very precise cutting. Yeah, of, cutting and pasting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to use another computer term. <laughs> right. So CRISPR, C all caps, C-R-I-S-P-R. It's an acronym not to be confused with a potato chip maker, also called a CRISPR. <laughs> so this technique is novel for a couple of reasons, but the bottom line is we've never been able to make these types of precise DNA edits before. Yeah, and so this really came into the news in the spring, April, March, yeah, April, May, I exactly. think it was really in the news. In May, the U.S. Um, approved a ban on germline editing. So there's two types of editing that you can do. You can edit somatic cells, which only affect the person into which the cells are, are inputted. Or you can have germline editing, and that's where you edit germ cells or reproductive cells, which affect the whole, all of the generations after that. So you person. basically make them heritable traits right. that you're editing. Right, right. Earlier this month, at the beginning of December, scientists and ethicists convened an international summit in Washington to discuss this technology and to talk about the ethical ramifications, whether or not we should press ahead with the use of this technology. And there are a few broad themes that emerge from that, right? Yes, yeah. So on the one hand, uh, we have there was broad agreement at this meeting that somatic cell editing it poses few risks. Right. So we we talked about the distinction. Somatic does not change the DNA of offspring. Germline editing does. Right. And so most of the people at this summit felt that there were a few risks involved, and it would be okay to continue with that kind of use of CRISPR. Somatic cell editing. Right. But they also then agreed that germline editing was there were risks involved um, and that could possibly mean a reason to pause that kind right. of research. But there are other sides to this too. So there are some at this summit who said, actually, no, germline editing is something we can do. We should press ahead with this type of technology so that we can get more information to make rational decisions about it later on. And then there are others who say, this isn't a question of having information at all. This is actually a question of what it is to be a human being and what it means to make decisions for future future generations before they even have the opportunity to make those decisions. Right. So some people 
who are in favor of germline editing to some degree have said, let's just press ahead. We don't even have enough information to say that it's wrong. While others are saying, let's put a, a two-year moratorium on the research just to to hold off for two years until we have enough information to say whether or not it could hurt future generations. It's really a fascinating question, though, and we're looking forward to hopefully talking about this on a future episode uh, yeah, in our podcast. Yeah, there's so many facets to the question so you know one thing i think is good about this is that the conversation is being had yes. and the conversation is being had in an international summit this yes. isn't just the the folks who came up with this technique in a lab in berkeley who are putting their heads together figuring right. out how to proceed this is people from canada and the uk and the u.s china. and china and the rest of europe uh getting together and figuring out what this means for the future of science and uh, biology. Yeah. So we definitely want to have a future podcast where we bring on some experts and talk about this again. Speaking of bringing on experts, yes. let's talk to Will. All right, we're back. Welcome to Vernacular Podcast. We're here with Will Bryan, who is uh, Dr. Will Bryan, who is uh, on a postdoctoral fellowship at Baylor University. Uh, Will, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Very glad to have you. So today we want to talk about invisibility. Uh, but before that, our last conversation with you was about alien life. So any updates to that yet? Uh, have we found aliens? There have been a few updates oh, since wow. we last talked about Very aliens. exciting. Ooh. Very exciting. Tell us. There, there is a group of people who believe that they have found alien life on Mars. Oh. There is a picture put online recently where clearly seen in the picture is what appears to be a gigantic mouse. What? Most people, most serious scientists, however, agree that it is, in fact, a rock that kind of looks like a gigantic mouse. Ah, I so see. that turned out really not to pan out so well. Did we ever um, think that Martians looked like gigantic mice? <laughs> the, some people do, apparently. <laughs> we have no real reason to believe that if there's life on Mars, it should be in the form of gigantic mice. Right. Fair enough. All right. So the, the great mouse hoax of 2015 has been discredited. Right. Um, also... A slightly more serious group of people thought that there might have been uh, signs of alien life coming from a distant star. We were detecting these anomalous signals, um, anomalous dips in the lumin luminosity of the star as something passed in front of it. This is how we detect exoplanets a lot of times, planets around other stars. We see dips in the brightness of the star as the planet, planet passes in front of it. And we were seeing dips that didn't really look right for how a planet should look when it passes in front of a star. And we talked about this in the last last conversation, and we did. We speculated this could be the Death Star, right? <laughs> <laughs> something like it. Uh, something designed a little more for energy collection rather than planetary destruction. A Dyson, Dyson a, a, sphere, right? That's right, a Dyson sphere. Good morning. Um, there was a lot of speculation that we could be seeing either a partially constructed or a partially destroyed and or decayed Dyson sphere around the star. However, further investigation has made it most seem most likely that what we're really seeing is a bunch of comets. Oh, that's so disappointing. So how do we come to that conclusion? By studying a bit more closely the spectrum of the these perturbations that we were seeing. It's it's very complex, very detailed stuff, and it it's easy to make it sound easy. Just oh yeah, you look a little closer, and oops, it looks more like a comet. Uh, there's <laughs> there's lots of real science behind that, but that's 
the short version of the story, I guess, is that they looked a little closer and it kind of looks like comets. I mean, when I look up at this guy, I often mistake comets for alien megastructures all the time. So <laughs> I can understand true. how those time. scientists, yeah. It happens to yeah, everybody. Good point. So question for you, Will. I don't know how well you're equipped to answer this, but I've always wondered with astronomers and cosmologists who do this stuff for a living, how how high is the fidelity on these S- these estimates that they make about these things because it's not like they've ever seen a Dyson sphere before, right? So it's not like they can actually understand what exactly the mathematical work on their signals would look like if that's what they were seeing on the frequency spectrum. Uh, Same, you know, same thing with a bunch of comets passing in front of something billions of years away. They may think they've seen that before, but Mm -hmm. how can they know? Because no one's ever been billions of light years away. Well, that is true. Uh, Regarding the Dyson Sphere, it's, it's not a common pronouncement uh, that astronomers make on any, with any sort of regularity. So uh, in my memory, this is the only time that I've really heard uh, serious scientists talk about the possibility that we could be observing a part of a Dyson Sphere. Um, so as far as what does it look like, how could we possibly know what a Dyson Sphere would look like? Well, really, what we're seeing is not light coming off of a Dyson Sphere. We're seeing the lack of light. We're seeing what it looks like when this thing passes in front of a star. And a Dyson Sphere, by definition, is meant to block and absorb light. So I think we'd actually have a reasonable idea of what sort of spectrum could be generated by that sort of thing. Uh, And I I do believe that most of the estimations, whatever you want to call them, made by astronomers are, are probably very, very accurate. I mean, these people work very, very hard and are very well trained. And it's a complex thing to try to look at the stars. Uh, as you say, none of us have ever been really out there, or maybe a handful of us have, a handful of humans have been kind of out there, but not really, not compared to uh, the scales that these astronomers are studying. Um, and it's, it's not obvious exactly how to look at the sky. That's actually a very subtle thing that people have been working on for centuries now. Um, how do we know, for example, how far away the sun is? Uh, that's not a completely trivial question to answer. You can't just look. There's no uh, ruler long enough to lay between the Earth and the sun. You have to do a bit of mathematics to really figure that out. How do we know how far away the other stars in our galaxy are? Well, that's a fairly subtle question as well. And uh, there's a good bit of science that goes into actually determining things like the distance from here to the nearest uh, to the next nearest star, other than the sun. Yeah, it's but. for this reason, though, that I'm always blown away by these estimates because I'll read things about the latest discovery of a planet that is X million years, X million light years away, and right. we're pretty sure that this planet is covered in what could be ice. And mm-hmm. it just like, how how do we know that? That's amazing. I don't, I don't right. doubt that the, the scientists have very good reasons for making those estimates, but I'm blown away that, that we have the capability to do that. The, the precision of some of these uh, observations that astronomers are capable of, ma- of making are unbelievable. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's really mind-blowing to think that we could determine something about the atmosphere of a planet that is hundreds of thousands of light years away. And that would be like determining something about the atmosphere, if there were such a thing, of a speck of dust. May- maybe something about a little bacterium crawling around on a speck of dust from... Uh, miles and miles and miles away. Right, right You're not exactly. Look yeah. Through your binoculars and say, oh yeah, there's a speck of dust 
in California. I can see it right now. And crawling on that speck of dust is a nice little paramecium. You, you just, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's incredible that we, that, that we can look that far and see that well. But it's doable. And a large part of how they make these observations is by looking at precisely what kind of light we do observe. So even if we observe it very faintly, uh, looking at the kind of light actually tells us quite a bit about what we're seeing. Because oxygen will absorb light in one way, and uh, car carbon dioxide will absorb it in another, and sulfuric acid will absorb it in another. And uh, we can tell a lot about the composition of a gas through which some light has passed based on what the light looks like after it comes through. You have, I know, a personal interest in the state of the art with regard to invisibility. So tell us what's going on in that field now. And let me know where I can buy my invisibility cloak, because I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, I know Frodo had one in The Lord of the Rings that was very useful. Frodo did not have an invisibility cloak. Yeah, he that's did have Harry the, Potter. the ability to become invisible. Well, he had that. The elves gave him that camouflage cloak. Yeah, it was a good camouflage cloak. That's right. And a large part of uh, the science behind invisibility is it's really the art of optical illusion, the art of making things camouflage. And true invisibility um, doesn't really work by making something transparent. So it doesn't work by allowing light to pass through an otherwise opaque object. As far as we know, that's impossible. Impossible is a big word in science. Uh, it's, it's one that I personally am pretty hesitant to utter, but I think I'm, I, I could with reasonable confidence say that that's probably impossible. Um, what is possible and what is happening now in some laboratories and a couple different ways in a couple different labs is that we're learning how not to make light pass through objects that are normally opaque, but how to bend light around those objects in such a way that it comes out on the other side looking as if it is passed through. And that's the idea behind modern invisibility technology. So it's not making things transparent. It's making things appear transparent because you've routed the light around the thing and then set it back on the course it was on beforehand. So are we significantly limited in the size of things that we can use this technique on? I imagine it'd be a lot harder to bend light around a stealth bomber than it would to <laughs> bend light around a pencil. Yes, that's true. Well, actually, that depends on what cloaking technology, what invisibility technology you're really working with. There are a couple different ones out there. Some of them are scalable. Uh, there's something very recent called the Rochester cloak, I believe, or the Rochester something from the University of Rochester that is fully scalable as far as we know and actually multi-directional, meaning that it provides uh, cloaking not just when you're looking from one particular angle, but you can move your eyes around a little bit, you know, you can bob your head up and down and the thing still looks invisible. Some of these technologies don't work that way. Some of them you have to be looking from one precise spot in order for the thing to appear invisible. So this Rochester cloak is essentially just a fancy system of lenses that bends the light down to a very, very, very small focused point uh, and then redirects it in such a way that it appears nothing's happened at all. And so as long as the thing you're trying to cloak doesn't cover up that one little point where the light gets bent down to, uh, then it, it will appear invisible. That sounds pretty cool. Are, do those techniques, or does the Rochester technique specifically, only work in the optical spectrum? It's, it's designed to work in the optical spectrum. 
I would imagine that because lenses don't necessarily uh, care which part of the spectrum you're looking at, you know, a lens will bend light uh, from any part of the spectrum. Um, you could design a Rochester cloak that works for really any portion of the spectrum you like. I will say, however, that a single cloak, at least the way that I've seen the design work, a single cloak couldn't really work for the whole electromagnetic spectrum at once, simply because a lens bends different wavelengths in different ways. Right. So is it theoretically possible to devise a version of the Rochester cloak that is designed to bend radar waves around the object it's concealing? Sure. Yeah, that's, that's perfectly feasible, I would, I would imagine. So, so what's, what's why this? would you do that, though? Stealth. To make something invisible to radar. Oh, I see. I Although see. we already have pretty good techniques for making things invisible to radar. Um, as those techniques have improved, radar has improved. Uh, it's, it's one of these games. But, you know, there is such a thing as a stealth bomber already. It doesn't right. work by really making itself invisible. I, I would say it's more camouflage than invisibility. But it's, it's really a fine distinction. So tell me more about this Rochester cloak. How's, the, how's it set up? What's the hardware look like? Well, the hardware is, is very simple, actually, uh, compared to other invisibility technologies anyway. The hardware is extremely cheap and extremely easy to set up. It's, it's just a system of lenses, uh, lenses that can be purchased at uh, online, probably. You could probably get lenses on Amazon and build one yourself for under $500. I'm going to build a Rochester cloak. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> you could build a really, really big one and then hide behind it. Can I put it on my car so that no one sees me coming? <laughs> that sounds very dangerous. <laughs> I don't recommend it. The reason that the Rochester Cloak is interesting but is part, part of the reason it's so interesting is precisely because it's so cheap. A lot of the other technologies being explored are incredibly expensive uh, because they work on fundamentally different principles. I think one of the most exciting is through something that's being called metamaterial which is a really fancy way of saying uh, that we're designing materials now that they sort of route light around something. So the, uh, imagine maybe a piece of cloth uh, with the fibers all running parallel to each other. These fibers are incredibly tiny, smaller than the wavelength of visible light. And when visible light hits these incredibly tiny little troughs, it gets sucked into them in a way, kind of like fiber optics. And it gets sucked into these little troughs and routed around something and then sent back on a course exactly identical to the course it was on before it hit this metamaterial. Now, this technology, I think, on the one hand, is not as exciting as the Rochester Club because it's not really scalable. Uh, some implementations are unidirectional. Some implementations uh, have the unfortunate quality of only working for things that are incredibly tiny. Um, you know, tiny enough that, ironically, they're already invisible to the naked eye. <laughs> so, However, so tinier than a paperclip. <laughs> <laughs> right. Far tinier than a paperclip. Right. However, I do think the metamaterials idea is more exciting than the Rochester idea in some ways, because in theory, I think, it could be developed to the extent where it could be turned into something akin to an actual... Invisibility, invisibility cloak. Oh, wow. Something like the Harry Potter books. So is there anything like that in the works now? No, that's, that's a long way off if it's possible at all. Unless you count... Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to correct myself, actually. There is a group in Tokyo that has developed a type of cloaking device. It's less invisibility technology than just good camouflage, okay. but it's a, 
it's a garment. It's an actual garment that someone can wear that has video cameras on the backside and essentially films what's behind you and then turns you into a television on the front to <laughs> wow. give you give a display of precisely what someone would be seeing if you weren't there. Wow. <laughs> Which is a really cool idea. Yeah, that's I'm pretty impressive. Sure. It sounds cumbersome and expensive though. <laughs> I'm sure it's both. I haven't uh I haven't seen any videos of it being used or anything like that. So I don't know how cumbersome it is. I'm sure it's very expensive. I also don't know how, it will, how well it works. I would imagine that the picture isn't quite perfect, that if there's any ripple in the screen fabric, whatever it is, then uh, it might not look quite right. Um, I would imagine there are a lot of very, very difficult problems to overcome before it looks really sharp. Probably only works from one angle as well. Yes. Yes. It can only work from, from one angle. So I assume that all these scientists who are working on invisibility techniques are not just trying to be like Harry Potter or Frodo. What are some of the practical <laughs> applications for this, for these well, kinds sure, of techniques? I'm sure that some of them are. I'm sure that some <laughs> of them are. Probably. Just, yeah. Uh, just I, I wouldn't put it past. Exactly. You know, I wasn't going to use that word, but I guess <laughs> if you have to put a label on them, sure. Um, but no, there are actually lots of very practical uh, applications for this sort of thing. Uh, so, for example, imagine a truck whose uh, cab is all of a sudden invisible to the driver so that he has no blind spots anymore. Or all of a sudden that's a much safer truck to drive. Or imagine um, invisible fighter planes when you go to war. Or invisible soldiers in the field. Uh, things like this. I, there are lots of applications for weapons technology and even outside of weapons technology. Um, sometimes it's just good to be invisible. So question about that. If you had one superpower, Will, would it be invisibility? I don't think that would be my one choice of superpower. I haven't actually thought about what my one choice would be. Oh, how have you not thought about this? <laughs> I, I just haven't thought about it. This but I could automatically definitely thought about five this. things that would be better than invisibility. Okay, so what are the five? Well, as, as a part-time logician, I think my first answer is that my ability should be the ability to generate whatever ability I want. So that way I don't have to choose just one. But okay. that, you're, you're like the guy who, that doesn't count. Yeah, you're like the guy who says, if I had one wish, I would wish for a hundred wishes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so assuming that's off the table, I think that better than invisibility would be the ability to fly. I just think that would be... I agree, yes. Sure. That's not my first choice, but I do agree that's better than invisibility. Um, superhuman strength would be pretty awesome. Mm, I don't know if I'd want that over invisibility, but maybe. I think that uh, something akin to what Wolverine has, sort of super healing and perpetual health, would Ooh, be that'd be, great. That would know, be good. Get older, and uh, it would be <laughs> nice not to have to worry about back pain or knee pain or whatever. So I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. So that was four? That was four. I you, did say five. You said five. We're, we're holding you to this. <laughs> Um, not laser eyes. Invisibility cool would be cooler than laser eyes. Okay, I didn't actually have five in my mind. All right, here's five. a fifth one for you that I think you'll find okay. cooler. This is my number one choice if I have a superpower. Teleportation. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Mm, that would be so great. handy. Yeah, that'd be so easy, especially for someone <clears throat> like Zach, who doesn't like driving the car for very long. <laughs> I don't. Over two hours, I'm toast. <laughs> Are we there yet? This is terrible. <laughs> Yeah, so that's my number one teleportation. Yeah, that would be my first choice as well. It would be so easy, as long as I could take people with me. 
because if I was the only one who could teleport, right. like I'd want to be able to teleport other people too who are with, right. in my party. Right. Yeah. I think that uh, like invisibility, uh, some of these things are things that could be made possible in the future by advances in science. Uh, there has too? been research done on teleportation, believe it or not. Whoa. Now, at the moment, it only works in very limited cases for very, very tiny things, uh, teleporting things like photons across right. the room. Okay. It's a start. Maybe in a few centuries we could have actual teleportation technology. Who knows? That would be crazy. That would be awesome. I don't think anyone three centuries ago would have predicted iPhones. So who knows? True. The stuff I've read about teleportation, though, involves basically disassembling molecules in one place and then reassembling Ooh. molecules in another place. It and I painful think or dangerous. It, it sounds dangerous and painful. Unhealthy. Uh, and potentially unhealthy. Dangerous. I think it also I raises really interesting philosophical questions, though, about what it means to exist and the question of the soul and embodiment. Sure. Yeah, it does raise some of those questions. I'm reminded of the Ship of Theseus paradox. You probably know this one. Uh, a, a, more, a modern version of it would be uh, just to observe that none of the molecules that cur currently comprise your body were part of your body 10 years ago, and yet we would all agree that you're the same person. Right, yeah. So there is, there is some extent to which uh, you are more than just a collection of atoms that compose you. So anyway, it's, it strikes me as a somewhat similar thing. If you're disassembled in one place and reassembled in another, uh, it's a bit like the ship of Theseus, but it's also different in some ways, too. A bit. I mean, it's certainly a lot more contrived, a lot more synthetic. Sure. Yeah, what, what really strikes me as bizarre would be uh, the idea that if I can disassemble you in one place and reassemble you in another, then why couldn't I just reassemble you in the second place and also leave you assembled where you are? Oh, that's, yeah, just uh, like a 3D Xerox. Right, right. Oh, Which, man. That, that would be very, very strange. Yeah, that's, ooh, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for talking to us about all that stuff, Will. I appreciate it. It's always, uh, it's always an enlightening conversation talking to you about science. Thanks for coming on the show, Will. I always learn way more than if I were just reading about these things. So thanks for explaining it to me like I'm a kindergartner. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Bye, Will. Bye. up with episode eight but before we do that we wanted to talk more about our giveaway that we hosted with a short blonde and tell you the winner yes so those of you who have listened to our previous episode or been on our website know that for the week after thanksgiving we were running a joint giveaway with a short blonde aka Catherine short a contributor to this podcast she blogs at ashortblonde.com, and we hosted a giveaway with a special box of surprises yeah there were so many goodies in there just i can't even list all of them because i don't even remember all of them because there are so many, but we included the book, The Right Stuff, which was one of Zach's favorites. Catherine included some Nashville coffee. We included some pumpkin tea and a package of Soylent uh, for yes. you to try. So things that we've talked about on this podcast, yeah, if you're picking up very on Very related. Here. And then if you listen to our episode where we talked to the authors of Date Night In, a cookbook, we included a copy of that cookbook. Kindly and donated by Ashley Rodriguez, the yes. author. Yes, Ashley was very kind to donate that for our giveaway. And Catherine included some barbecue sauce that was from Nashville. So those are just a handful of the wonderful things that our giveaway 
giveaway winner, Victoria, won. Congratulations, Victoria. You have won an amazing prize. I wish I had won that prize. (laughs) We hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much, though, to everyone who entered our giveaway. I'm sorry to all of you who did not win, but stay tuned for the next one because we will do another one, and we wish you more success in that. (laughs) In the meantime, congrats, Victoria. Yes. And I also wanted to um, add a little addendum to a comment that I made in our last episode. I mentioned that REI was closed on Thanksgiving, and I applauded that because there were some stores that were opening very early for Black Friday sales and opening as early as 1 o'clock on Thanksgiving. But it turns out that REI was also closed on Black Friday. They started this campaign called like Opt Out opt out outside opt or outside. opt outside yeah and so their their campaign was that no one should go shopping on black friday but you should just go outside go hiking go with your be with your family go to a park go do something outside and don't be in the crowds shopping and i so, found out about this campaign after the fact because i was on instagram and saw some friends who were posting pictures of themselves hiking <laughs> with the hashtag opt outside and i was confused until i heard you tell me about this yeah. opt outside thing so yeah. pretty cool so that was really cool and i just wanted to doubly applaud REI for that campaign. I would have loved to opt outside, but we had a rainy Black Friday. It was really rainy. Yeah, we we didn't really get outside. Um, but also, I wanted to check the inbox before yes. we wrap things up. Let's so check the inbox. Let's check the inbox. And we have something. Yay. This is from Caitlin. And Caitlin says, Hi, Zach and Sally. After listening to your most recent episode and Zach's anti-Thanksgiving food rant. Okay, that's not what it was. No, I mean, that's kind of what I said it was. So she's kind of quoting me. Right. Okay. It was anti-Thanksgiving food. We're yeah, clarifying uh, here. Okay, yes. Yeah, and she, she clarified as well. Okay. Yeah, so no one's right. saying you're anti-Thanksgiving. Right. Okay. Just anti-Thanksgiving food, the traditional food. And, and says, I'm not even against it. I just right. am against that food being served at Thanksgiving. Right, right. I, I just think it's not creative enough. Right. Okay, right. continue. Okay, so we don't need another rant. (laughs) She says, I have an alternative way of doing Thanksgiving to share with you guys. My in-laws have a longstanding tradition of non-traditional Thanksgiving meals. I'm already on board with this. This is great. Even before she goes further, I love it already. Tell me more. Instead of the typical turkey, mashed potatoes, cranberry fare, her in-laws always make their favorite foods, which usually ends up being a Cajun feast because they're from the South. And that includes a variety of things. I don't even know what all these things are. Are, but gumbo, turtle soup, Cajun stuffed potatoes. And this year they went a non-seafood route. They made, this sounds amazing, bourbon and brown sugar flank steak. That was the entree. And then chocolate cupcakes for dessert. So, so I nothing think, bland or dry about that meal, she says. I think I know where I want to go for next year's Thanksgiving. Yeah, something we need to channel. Caitlin's in-law's house is where I want to be. <laughs> or in lieu of that, <laughs> we should try to replicate that at our house. We're going to. It's yeah. decided already. I love it. I think it's great. I mean, you can have Thanksgiving without Thanksgiving foods. That's been my point all yeah. along. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Caitlin. You have given us a new tradition. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap up, but I just want to... Reminder on the editorial question. Yep. I want to remind people to email us at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com and answer our editorial question. Which is? Which is, have you seen the 12 Dates of Christmas? And tell me how much you love it. <laughs> well, that's that's the... I don't really care as much about that editorial question okay, as the one about you can give the other. which superpower would you have if you were a superhero? Yeah. So we're going to extend this question to everyone. Will answered it. Zach and I answered it. But... If you have a favorite superpower that wasn't mentioned or was, tell us what it is. Let us know. Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. Which reminds me, visit our website, vernacularpodcast.com. 
Uh, check out the blog there. You can also listen to episodes. You can also find us on Overcast, Stitcher, and of course, iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash vernacularpod or simply at vernacularpod. And find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. And for all the links to everything that we talked about, check out our blog post, which will be accompanying this episode. And I think that's it. I think it is. All right. Oh, and rate and review us on iTunes. Oh, yes. Please do. We always appreciate your ratings and reviews. Yeah, that really helps people find our podcast. It helps to increase our visibility on iTunes. And we really appreciate it. And if you write us a little note, we'll read it on the podcast. We always do. (laughs) All right. I think that's it for us. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. I'm by your side